lover of all things lit, professional reviewer, recommender, book blogger. I am your host, Lloyd Russell, aka The Book Sage, and you're listening to Lit with Lloyd, courtesy of KCAT Radio. Hi there. Uh, this is Lit with Lloyd, and I am your host, Lloyd Russell. Uh, and today, thanks to KCAT Always, uh, we've got a couple of things going on. First of all, uh, today, or two days ago, I guess, was our one-year anniversary of the podcast. So for all of those uh, who have listened or watched at least some, uh, thank you for that, and uh, we're looking forward to year two. Uh, and our first guest in year two is uh, Stephen Hauser, who is an award-winning author. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that you're going to perhaps see something a little bit different than the normal interview, is my guess. So, Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Great to have you. Thank you. Uh, and the first thing that I want to mention that, that maybe you don't realize is that between us, we've almost reached 150 years of age. <laughs> so I know that the readers, uh, the listeners and watchers wanted to know that. It's, it's a significant milestone. I don't know about you, but I think 200 years between us would be really nice. <laughs> that would be really good. We'll celebrate that together. Uh, okay, so you've written a bunch of books. You've got, you've got a, a, a genre that is known as magical reality correct right who coined the the genre and how did you get to that particular type of book i think that's a great question um magical reality magical realism most people would say well i've read gabriel garcia marquez you know the what uh years during yeah the yeah time of cholera i love yeah, during yeah, the time yeah. of cholera <laughs> but if i'd say can you name any others the answer is no so what I'd like to do is try and define it in such a way that it becomes easy to understand and use. It is a genre. Uh, and the idea is that you're having an everyday life and something enters into that, which is mysterious, strange, otherworldly, possible supernatural. Probably the greatest short novel of that reality is Metamorphosis, which is Kafka's novel, which starts out where he wakes up in bed as a cockroach. Um, which he never really talks about how that <laughs> happened. Um, I like to, to consider uh, the genre in, in the terms of a tall tale, a tall tale. And I'll give you some examples. Uh, literature, ancient Greek and Roman literature is full of those kinds of stories. Um, the Bible is probably the real foundation for where a lot of those are drawn. In classical, you might think of Odysseus, who wanted to hear the sirens sing. Uh, he plugged all the crew's ears with wax uh, and then was tied to the mast. And the singing was so beautiful that he cried and pleaded to be untied so he could join the sirens singing in the rocks, which is a good thing he didn't because they would have eaten him. Uh, but that's a, obviously a great travel anecdote. It's beyond reality, but it tests him to the end. Um, a thing about magical reality is it's not so much what the characters do but you watching them and what would you do how, how would it affect you another example is david and goliath goliath a nine-foot giant uh david shepherd boy brings him down with his sling um 
tall tales exist today a lot in religious circles um, and they probably wouldn't like the term tall tale so <laughs> let's call it something that's foundational and metaphysical or religious I read the other day that more than 50% of the adults in America believe that we're in the last times as described by the book of Revelation if you've looked at Revelation, Jesus comes back quite angry at everything. And there are floods and famine, devastations. The world basically comes to an end. So that tall tale, if I may, is close to the heart of hundreds of millions of people in this country. I think what makes tall tales fun is that it takes you away from your familiar territory and your familiar props. Uh, an equivalent might be when you go traveling. When you go traveling, you're not really sure, how do you catch a taxi? Am I working the ATM properly? Do I know enough about the language to order? So that's either very scary or extremely refreshing to go into an environment where the rules have kind of softened and disappeared and you're on your own. You're on your own to observe. Um, a last note on that would be that we are surrounded by tall tales in the cinema. This is the day and age of the superhero right i mean it's the batman it's joker it's superman supergirl those are all larger than life and yet they live a real life with real people and you get to sit and judge and take a look last comment on that why i prefer to write in that genre instead of um let's say a straightforward literary fiction uh is it can be very fun there's lots of fun things that can happen in the stories lots of surprises and I would say, Lloyd, that's my one goal in writing any book is for someone to put it down and say, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your books are fun. Thank uh, you. Uh, I've read several. Uh, I haven't caught up yet to all of them, but, uh, but I certainly have enjoyed them. All right. So let's back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Your lifetime career was not in writing books. Correct. What was your career and when did you start when did you start writing? When did you know that you wanted to write novels? Actually in college, I thought it'd be great to be a writer. Uh, I won some awards for my writing and was encouraged by the faculty that I knew to, to, to pursue it. But my father, who always cut to the core of things, said, so what exactly are you going to write about? <laughs> and I realized that was the question I couldn't answer. <laughs> At 21, what am I going to write about? Uh, so instead, I went into um, industry, technical industry. I was in the software industry for almost 30 years. Really liked it. Uh, and I found that being a person of humor and buoyancy and availability made my crews do exceptionally well. So of course I was able to benefit from that and I really enjoyed it. In 2000, uh, there occurred what is called often the, the dot-com crash. Uh, several hundreds, thousands of companies were trying to create apps for mobile phones. That was the big goal and it was so slow that the investors almost as a group pulled back from those companies. I was in one of them. 6,000 software companies went under mm. and I was in one that did. Um, so I said to my wife in a moment of clarity, I said, we have two little kids. You're an IBM VP. How about if you bring home the bread and I'll take care of the kids and I'll take care of the house. 
And that's what we've done now for 2000, from 2002 till now, 20 years. Uh, and it's been great. Best job I ever had was being able to raise the children. One done with college, the other going to college. Uh, I'm on my own, but I spent all those 20 years writing a book every year. Oh, wow. Which was great. And I remember telling my friends somewhere in that uh, time scale that they said, I think I could write almost anything I want to write, but I have no idea if it's any good. Then one of my friends said, you know, Kepler's, which is the kind of the national bookstore up in Menlo Park. Right. They're having a contest for an unpublished mystery. You write mysteries, you know, you like magical realism. Why don't you submit? <laughs> And I thought, well, that's actually a pretty good test because you're up against the Palo Alto crowd and the Stanford crowd. Uh, so I submitted the first book in a series, unpublished at the time, called The Wicked Sisters in Hell. It's about a ne'er-do-well sister who managed to go to hell <laughs> and a Scotland Yard inspector who managed to go to heaven and got kicked out. So they both wind up in hell. Uh, and hell is not maybe what you think of automatically as <laughs> fire and brimstone. Hell is inconvenient. The water doesn't taste good. Food's not necessarily available. The streets are full of potholes. So it's massive inconvenience. And over the course of the books that I've written in the series, the streets are repaired, the buildings are fixed, people have jobs, there's fresh groceries. Uh, and in fact, uh, Millie, who is the older sister of the Scotland Yard, she brings in Starbucks and Ben and & Jerry's and Barnes & Noble. Uh, but what made it especially fun is it went from this terrible place under Lucifer to a, quite a magnificent place. Uh, and it's also been uh, very, very fun to bring characters into those books. Um, I'd like to give them a second life or a second breath. Uh, and in the context of what's happening in that book, it can be very fun, very clever, very dangerous. Um, one of the books, uh, Jack the Ripper, of course, in hell, starts up again. And he's just as smart as ever. They can't peg anything about the guy or why he's killing or how he's killing, but he is. So they go to one of uh, hell's more famous residents, and I hope this doesn't offend anybody. They go to Albert Einstein. <laughs> uh, the reason he's in hell, by the way, is because he invented the atomic bomb, if you must know. But they go to him, and in the 1920s, a lot of people don't know it, but Albert Einstein saw and visualized wormholes as two special realities. One, it could geographically take you from place to place. Uh, now often they talk about folded space and being able to go through it. That was his idea, geographically. But a lot of people don't know that he also called those wormholes time bridges, where you could connect from your time to anywhere you wanted to go if you could figure out where that wormhole was. So in one of the books, Jack the Ripper is actually confronted in London 1888 because Einstein has managed to send the Wicked Sisters back to find him. Uh, so he's there, Wyatt Earp uh, and his boys are in one of the novels. Joseph Smith is in the novel, uh, the, the Mormon. In fact, they find golden tablets down in hell, which kind of surprised everybody except Joseph. Uh, Agatha Christie puts in an, uh, an adventure. Uh, Charlton Heston is there. Uh, and I think you also would enjoy meeting the archangels. Jesus is a great guy. Uh, Jehovah is a little bit more stiff 
uh, and a little harder to deal with. But nothing in the series contradicts anything at all in a traditional interpretation of scripture. So all the characters, while they might have a flamboyance or a humor or something that you wouldn't expect, is still in the character of you seeing that, uh, that person in the Bible. So I have no idea what question you asked me, but I'm at the, <laughs> I'm at the end of what I had to say. <laughs> you did have a couple of comma, commas and semicolons in there, but uh, uh, no periods. No, 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 till now. <laughs> Uh, okay, so just following up on that, so you've had no backlash at all from any religious people? I had, I've had individual comments. Uh, one series I'm writing is called, it's about Jesus, and it's an alternative series, though they all are. Um, <laughs> he, uh, I woke up and got out of bed one morning and the, the phrase went through my head, what if the greatest man who ever lived never died? And the, the novels that have grown out of that now, which there are six, three are published, is that Jesus uh, declares himself to be the Messiah of the Jews. And he builds a kingdom, uh, recovering from the de devastation of the Romans. He builds a kingdom, a giant kingdom with massive troops and a wonderful economy and becomes a very major power in the Mideast. So the series of books shows him really as a messianic king, a true king of the Jews, uh, and on a par with Roman power. One of my favorite books is not published yet, but it was really fun to write, <laughs> is I'm not a great fan of the so-called Catholic kings. One actually was a queen. Uh, it's Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of uh, Spain. When they came to power, they began a massive push to kill or remove all the Jews and all the Muslims from Spain. I mean, we're talking brutal years of violence. So in my book, when Jesus gets ear that the Catholic kings are beginning to push against the minorities, he saddles up an army of 200,000 men and rides to Spain to find out what's happening. So that's the kind of thing you can only do <laughs> with tall tales. Yeah. Uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. <laughs> All right, so you said that you started writing a book a year in what, 2002? 2002. So have you literally written 19 or 20 books? Yes, at least. Wow. And it's, uh, there are a whole range of topics. Uh, I tend to like series so they can build as opposed to one 1900-page book. Um, so The Wicked Sisters in Hell is the series of them investigating crimes in hell. Uh, there is murder in hell. Uh, Satan and nobody else knew that until people wound up being murdered. Uh, the first book, uh, he actually has corpses being dumped on his front porch. I read that one. Did not appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, so the thing, however, is you can be killed, but you also are brought back. Uh, the Bible teaches that there is a heavenly body and there is an earthly body and there's a hell body, if that's where you wind up. And God, being quite loyal to his own sense of justice, if you get killed in hell, he'll recreate your body for you because hell's everlasting. There's no way <laughs> that you're going to get out of it early. Um, I, I think the nice thing about writing a series also is it brings in so much outside personality. You don't have to spend all your pennies on that one book. Uh, and you learn all kinds of things. A uh, little tidbit I learned was that Wyatt Earp actually tutored John Wayne 
on how to be a cowboy. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's great. I, where, well, how do you do research for these things? I mean, you, you obviously have research because the famous people in, in history that are in hell, they're there for things that we, the common folk, don't know. Yeah. But you have done research to find out that they have done something that legitimately lands them there. How, how, how do you do research for this? Great question. Um, and it is a lot of research. I don't outline or plan where the novel's going to go, but I do read as much as I can about the individual characters who will be in the novel. And there's almost always a huge surprise. Um, I wrote one novel where uh, an ancient city, old city, is uncovered in hell. Lucifer did not know about it. And when the city is excavated by Millie and Marty, the Wicked Sisters, they discover that the town's population was martyred, murdered, wiped out. So not only is it a mystery town, but it's a town that was led to destruction. Well, who did it? If it was people in hell, they're still here, which means we can figure out who they're going to be. And they, uh, they have Satan bring back some of these people that were killed. One of them is uh, Joseph Smith. Uh, and much to my surprise, I had always thought, as I was taught, that Joseph Smith was a victim of cold-blooded murder. Turns out, not exactly true. Uh, Joseph Smith uh, landed in the Midwest, and he formed a private army of 5,000 people. I think it was Nauvoo, Illinois. 5,000 people, uh, and uh, made them his own, literally, private army. The governor of the state uh, arrested him and took him in for trial, saying that this was illegal and inappropriate. Um, while uh, he was in jail, Joseph uh, received six shooters. They were smuggled into him. He thought, I'm going to protect myself even if nobody else is. And when the mob did finally approach the jail and, and start breaking through the windows, Joseph took out 12 guys wow. before they were inside and you know did some justice, quote unquote. <laughs> so a tough, amazing, brilliant person and was very fun. And as you might imagine, a little bit self-righteous. So he was a character that I really enjoyed having in a book. Wow. All right. We got to take a quick break and then we shall return with more of Stephen Hauser and his books. Thank you to the Los Gatos Community Foundation for their continued support of KCAT Public Media. Because of groups like the Los Gatos Community Foundation, KCAT has been able to inspire, educate, entertain, and inform our community through the magic of television and digital media for over 38 years. Thank you. And we are back with Stephen Hauser. Uh, let's pick up where we left off. So I asked you about kickback on the religious side. Have you had any kind of kickback or comments on these very famous characters that that you are sending down to hell i mean is, has anybody from einstein's family contacted you for example i've, uh, I've only had positive feedback um, for the most part on the characters even joseph smith <clears throat> well 
They've been very quiet. <laughs> As I mentioned to you uh, at the break, my publisher said, is there no group of people that you can't offend? Uh, but when you're teasing and being fun, um, and that's different from being disrespectful. Yeah. All the characters get respect. Um, I think in Einstein's case, uh, it offends me so deeply right or wrong that he did create the atomic bomb and push Roosevelt to build it and use it um, so I put him in hell uh, I do get a lot of letters from people saying I'm delighted by who's winding up in hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well did, did you send FDR to hell for yes you have okay yes. I and, haven't gotten to that and one also, yet and also Truman <laughs> I mean, they're all culpable um and that's, it's an interesting thing because you can still admire somebody uh, for a bad decision. Um, I think one of the things that's fun about writing, probably in any genre that's mystery related to just go branch off, is um, you do get to make the rules. That's what's fun about any writing. Yeah. Uh, unless it's nonfiction and you're being straightforward. Yeah. But one thing about mysteries uh, that I, I pondered for a long time, why would I want to write something like that? It's regarded as light. It's regarded as a, a subpar genre. It's not real literature. It's not real writing. Um, and I realized that the appeal for me is that I'm living my life as a mystery and there's very few answers. I don't really know how my kids will turn out. I don't really know what I'll be doing five years from now. I don't really know when I'm gonna die. I mean, isn't that the biggest mystery of all? <clears throat> but what's extremely attractive about mysteries, and at any given time, six out of the 10 New York Times bestsellers are mysteries, is that you can have the adventure and you can actually see it come to a conclusion. You can see it end. And I think that a great deal of satisfaction comes to us living the unending story, living the unending mystery, that we can see this, follow it through. There's a satisfactory, usually, ending, even a murder mystery. You read an Agatha Christie, and at the very, very end, it's incredibly satisfying as she pulls it all together, and there's the end of the mystery. So that makes it fun. Uh, I have to admit, coming into this interview, that I did not expect so much philosophy from you. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I like it, and I appreciate it. Uh, all right, so I want to go back to the time when you first got published. Mm -hmm. And do you have the same publisher now for all your books? Uh, are you guaranteed to get every new book published? Tell us all about that. It's a fun story. <clears throat> I'll be me. the judge of that. Okay. I think it's a fun story. <laughs> <laughs> when I submitted my manuscript to uh, the bookstore, uh, Kepler's, um, and I won their award, I'm not sure there's more than two or three other people in the contest, but I haven't asked. <laughs> but I won the award. Uh, a man called me up and said, I, I saw the award, I know about the book, and I'd like to publish you. And I said, wow, are you a publisher? He says, no. <laughs> he said, I'm a painting contractor. <laughs> but I've made a lot of money, and I'm thinking, what do I do next? And if you have more books, I'd like to publish them. Wow. And that's how it started. It's been great because he publishes everything that I write. He pays for everything that I write. Um, the difficulty has been that with an independent publisher, and there are a lot of them, 40% of all publishers are these independents. And the other 60% are the big five. The big guys, yeah. <laughs> the big guys. Yeah. <laughs> and um, is you don't have PR. 
you don't have right. a way of publicizing uh you don't have a way except you hope people discover it yeah yeah uh, so i sell like i said i sell several thousand books a year which i'm very happy about uh, but those are dedicated readers they come find me so it's not probably gonna be a massive blowout uh, on the other hand uh, i am working with an agent who specializes in media and for an author to have something picked up as a TV series or as a movie, you know it's incredibly rare, but it can happen. Um, he's contacting two people, both of whom I think you will know, saying, did you know that Stephen Hauser's Wicked Sisters are based on you? One of them is a girl I acted with in college, uh, and she acted in my plays. Her name is Meryl Streep. <laughs> so he's going to talk to her. Oh, so, my God. Would you like to be in? And the other is a girl I dated in high school who turned out to be a great television actress, Jean Smart. Oh, of course. Pulling down Emmys this year still. Yeah, the, the uh, Hacks. Great series. <laughs> yes, and she is great. I remember when I went off to college, she dumped me. Uh, and I think went out with a lumberjack or somebody like that. <laughs> but I, I, I have always honored in my heart the experience with those two women. So they're part of the book. Also a fun thing, which no one ever discovers, is that you can put in people's names that you like or don't. You can put in stories from your life or other people's lives. Uh, I remember the most recent book I wrote uh, is based on young Arab men taking wormholes into hell, Judeo-Christian hell, and they track down and kill SEALs, the Navy uh, Special Forces, killing SEALs. Uh, and eventually, when Marty and Millie get to the bottom of it, they've discovered they're being sent specifically by Osama bin Laden, who's in Muslim hell, and he wants revenge on the seals that murdered him and his family. So it's an interesting plot, and I decided I'm going to use the names of my grade school friends in this book. <laughs> so I was a little worried, so I called them up separately. I mean, it's been, what, 50 years? And said, oh, geez, longer than that, never mind. Yep, so yep. I called them up, and I said, how would you feel about being named in hell as a Navy SEAL in this special team, and their Arabs are pursuing you? Every one of them thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever heard. <laughs> that moment of fame, right? Uh -huh. There's my name. Oh, that's so that great. one it was very, it was really fun, really fun. <laughs> uh, how many books do you have, if any, <clears throat> sitting in a drawer? Or are they all out there and published? I have about probably 10 books that are ready, um, including a new one coming out um, in the summer. Uh, the idea of the new one is uh, in the year 2300, basically the earth died. The United Nations wound up being a world government and they took over control. They let most people pass. So the ending population of the earth is like, in 500 years later is only a few million people plus under two separate scientific enterprises, they shrank human beings from six foot to six inches. <laughs> now, where it gets interesting <laughs> is in 2800, a spaceship drops into the Potomac River. And inside are Americans who went to Mars 500 years ago, grew a colony, were successful, were cut off from the earth, but now they've returned. So the six-inch earthlings are going to meet the six-foot Martians. 
And that's where that goes. And, and was this written before the movie Don't Look Up? <laughs> it was, actually. <laughs> With your friend Meryl Streep? <laughs> <laughs> that's, it's a topic that's in and out of vogue. Um, and I even refer to it in the book. I, he calls those sugar cubes that didn't last. Uh, <laughs> but in this one, the, the whole pretext is around that conflict. And again, you as an observer, <clears throat> excuse me, can stand aside and watch how that plays out. Uh, magical realism at its best. Um, I think also uh, one book that I've written, it's, it's sitting, uh, no, it's published, uh, was the story of uh, a robot, 100 years from now, San Francisco cop. She's an AI in a robot body, and she works with the homicide uh -huh. cops. So there's a sequel coming up by popular demand. Uh, it'd be my wife and kids. <laughs> she uh, is called in to investigate the murder in the city of a very rich, very prominent Central Valley uh, agricultural producer. And uh, she's called in because he's been murdered in the city. And when she's witnessing the autopsy, she is struck very profoundly by the fact that this dead person is an alien. It's an alien. And so that's where the story goes, is why is he here? Are there others? And how do you find them? I, I think I read the first one, didn't I? Yes, you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. You, you said something to me like, you have a secret dark side. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that, but I, I can see it. Uh, all right, so I have to go back to something that I'm a little confused. You first got published without an agent. Right. So how did you later get an agent? And is the agent involved at all with your publisher? I went looking. There's books that come out every year called How to Find an Agent uh -huh. or therefore that kind of a title. And you go through and you isolate which people are media agents and what kinds of things they like to do. Uh, sometimes in writing agents, you can make a mistake. I wrote an agent in Jerusalem and said, I have this great story about how Jesus becomes the king of the Jews. She wrote back and said, you think I'd publish that in Israel? <laughs> and my Israeli friend said, get it straight. No matter how you redeem Jesus, we don't want him redeemed. <laughs> but you find those and then they read basically your materials and make a decision. And then they start to contact, really cold contact, Merrill or Gene or other people and say, look, this is a book sold well. It's, it's something we want to see if we can sell to the movies. Would you be interested? And very often the actor or actress has the clout then to take it to a studio and say, I want you to look at this. Uh, is your agent currently in the process of contacting Gene Smart and, Sh and Meryl Streep? We're currently at the place of agreeing how much he's going to take when he sells something. <laughs> <laughs> in books, a book agent will take 10% normally, but the, the media guys want 30%. And his thing is, look, if I pull off a movie for you and you make X amount of money, is 30% really going to matter? And that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, he and the publisher don't have any relationship. Um, the publisher has allowed me to own all the material. I own the art that's created. So it gives me huge flexibility. Uh, I remember being at the book club one time, one of your authors was saying that they couldn't control at all. Right. When a volume would come out. And we don't have that issue. Yeah, yeah. 
And um, what I'm going to do is when I have him talk to Gene and Merrill, I'm going to find a really nice, handsome picture of some other guy besides me. <laughs> say, He's interested. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but they actually know you, so that may not work. Well, they might know me, you know. It's, like, <laughs> it's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you've, you've got the agent that's working on that. Yes. You're still just working directly with your publisher. Right. Uh, and... Uh, and, and do you just expect to stay with this publisher indefinitely? Have you ever had, have you ever had the 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 notion or the the, the question of whether you could get another uh, higher profile publisher? I have thought about it, but I think I appreciate so much the start that he gave Good. me, and I also agreed with him, uh, which so far has not been huge. But I said whatever I make, books, movies television i'm just gonna pay you half that's just how it is uh so you know i'd love to have something big happen as a thank you for him he's vested in 10 going on 11 books wow uh and he's just a great guy um one of the stories about him that i love is he moved back to sacramento where he grew up and he tried to buy a house close enough to the zoo so that night he could open the windows and hear the lions roaring I mean, <laughs> how do you even deal with a person like that, right? Yeah. So he's just yeah. a great guy. He's a great guy. Okay, that's very cool. Um, what are you working on now? I know you said that you've got one book. Are you work? Do, do you do multiple books at, at the same time? I think about multiple books at the same time. But you write one at a time. I write one at a time, and generally, I don't plan what it will do. I let the book tell me what it wants to do. Um, and which is very, very fun because a lot of times you just really don't know what's going to happen. And it all comes together very nicely in some mystical way that I can't define so that by the end, it's like, okay, I like that. But I don't go into any book with a preconception of how it's going to develop or how it's going to end. Uh, do you have any of your books in e or audio form? I don't. Uh, I don't do ebooks for the simple reason that it's a very small group of the population that does ebooks. As you probably noted, Barnes and Noble kind of gave up on its version of Kindle. Kindle still has an active population that's loyal, but 97%, I believe, of all readers prefer to have a book in their hands. So the ebook revolution never really took off completely. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I I know so many people that just read ebooks. I'm I'm really surprised to uh, to hear that. Although I certainly am happy for the print version. So am I. It's it's pretty nostalgic to just pick up the book and say, yeah. oh boy. Yeah. Okay. All right. We are going to stop there and go on to our next venture. <laughs> so every week, not every week, but every podcast, you know that I have trivia. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're actually going to have Stephen tell us uh, a story and give us a couple of trivia questions. So I'm, I'm ready to go, and so are they. Okay. Uh, one of the things a lot of people encounter, and I've heard almost all your authors talk about it at the book club, um, is the difficulty acquiring an agent, getting an agent to pay attention, getting an agent to say, you know, I might be able to help you here very hard um, so first trivia question is how many rejections rejection letters actually letters by the way that's the good old day and age about 95% of all uh, agents today don't write you back if they don't like you you're electronically dumped 
But in the old days, somebody wrote you a letter. Yeah. How many rejections did Robert Piercig, the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, how many rejections did he get on that book? I know a couple of other authors. I don't know this one, but I'm going to say 65. I think that's a good guess. It was actually 121. And the 121st publisher said, I don't think this is going to sell but it's a great book and I'm going to publish it. And since then, it sold 5 million copies. Holy mackerel, yeah. that's <laughs> so amazing. It did real well. It was a big book in the late 70s uh -huh. and uh, a heroic book. I had the good fortune of taking a motorcycle trip from Minnesota where I was living to California where I was moving. And I read that book every night on my way. Well, uh, I do know that the clan of the cave bear mm -hmm. gene owl was rejected i forget whether it was 63 or 68 but it was in the 60s uh and that is that's fairly common for some big name authors yeah so same thing with with this all right next and i should say that i probably have gone through 40 media agents before one seriously said let me see what i can do for you oh wow uh, and i don't know what works i don't know what they think i don't know what impresses them but eventually, most authors find at least one person that says, I think I can sell yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, second trivia question. Um, Dr. Seuss, Ted Geisel, everybody knows that he had a lot of rejections because his stuff was so different. So the first question is, how many rejections did he get trying to hawk his first book, which was, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. <laughs> How many rejections did he get? Our last author, by the way, that hasn't come up yet on air, uh, wrote a book called Mulberry. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, it had nothing to nothing do with to Dr. Seuss. Okay. okay. Uh, 53. That's very close. It was 1936, and he had 27 rejections. In fact, the part of the story that's really fun is he was walking from the publisher, because in those days you could actually go in and make a presentation. He got his 27th rejection letter and was walking down Madison Avenue, and he says he was determined to take this book, go home and burn it. But he's walking down Madison Avenue, and he runs into a classmate. He went to Dartmouth College and runs into a guy that he knew. It turns out the classmate is now the kids editor at one of the major publishers. Oh my gosh. He said, let me see it. Calls him back and says, I'll publish it. I'll wow. publish it. Later, as Seuss said, <laughs> if he'd been walking on the other side of the street, today he wouldn't be an author, he'd be a, a, a dry cleaning owner. <laughs> wow. And I've got a story similar to that, not really similar, but something that's a big surprise. Um, where the Wild Things Are. Yes. Maurice Sendak originally wanted to write a book called Where the Wild Horses Are and couldn't draw a horse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've done this. I, I, mean, I don't know if I've said this before on, on any of the, pros, but the that's shows, great. but that's, that's there. Okay, so tell us about J.D. Salinger. J.D. Salinger lived very close to Dartmouth, where I went to college, and um, very reclusive. I mean, you just you didn't see or hear from him. It's very very famous that no one interviewed him he didn't let people see his books he only released them begrudgingly to be published uh and i'm in the dartmouth bookstore one day and i'm looking at the books there's like a whole shelf by that point of jd salinger books and i hadn't read any 
I knew about him because he's this mystical figure in the Dartmouth woods. But I'm looking at these titles and I'm pulling them down and looking to put it back. And I get this funny feeling, you know, like hackles on the back of your neck. Uh, and I turn around and there's this very tall man with his arms folded watching me <laughs> and I thought no I can't be <laughs> so I kept looking and I realized no it was JD Salinger was watching to see which of his books I was gonna oh buy oh my gosh yes and it was raise the roof beams higher if anybody wants to know I pulled it out went to the cash register and he was gone oh, uh, so you bought it basically because he was there no, I wanted to oh, buy. Oh, you were going to buy yeah, one anyway. I was going to buy okay. one anyway. Uh, you know, now today I'd say, "Gee, would you mind signing this?" For yeah, me? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was, so it was a great experience, and I, I've only told three or four people, and the ones I tell say, "No, that didn't really happen." I said, no, it really did happen. I think that's that's really cool. It was fun. Yeah, it yeah. was fun. Okay, I think uh, we're done. We're done. Yeah, it's been a privilege. It's, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, KCAT. Uh, it was great having Stephen here for with us. Uh, and uh, we will see you next time. Bye. You just heard Lit with Lloyd here on KCAT Radio. Explore all our KCAT original programming at kcat.org radio.